Good morning. Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, good, good. Everybody's excited. We, well, listen, we're going to play a game. That's why we roped off the top sections over here. We know you don't like that, but we want to do it for today. Everything about the message has to do with the game we're getting ready to play. So you see Ali, Ali is over here and holding up. What do you have? What do you got? The, the Rams? Yeah. Okay. Corey over here with the Patriots. tell you what, a lot more energy in the room than the 9.30. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, 9.30, I'm like, here they are. It's like crickets. Anyway, um, so you have the football. So what Corey and Allie are going to do is slowly walk, okay? And whoever you think, not who you want to win, not emo- this is not emotional, this is rational. Oh, no, they're going to win. So I'm, and I, can, I can tell you right now, there's just, there's just no, I mean not an emotional decision, just a rational decision. That, that's who's going to win. And you can see that Corey and Allie have Horizon shirts on. So uh, you can, they're having a pancake. They're doing a double dip today, Horizon is, which is our young professionals group, having pancake blowout right after the service today. If you want to know where it is, you've never been here before, you can meet right over here at Grayson 5. They can tell you they're also having a Super Bowl party tonight. So I want you to know about that. All right. We got some music. We're going to play the game. You throw. They're going to walk slow. They're going to come to you. Don't worry. They're going to come to you. Make sure you throw it into the basket of your choosing. Here we go. Have at it. Start the music. Okay. Pay attention to what's happening in the room. Very good. Very good. Okay. All right. We're... Where am I? Okay, there we go. Okay, now the saints. Now the saints have come in. The saints. The saints have come marching in. They're disrupting things. So if you think the saints should actually win, I want to let you know in the first service, the saints won this contest. Then go ahead and put it in the saints. There you go. Okay, keep, that's good. Keep, keep moving. Keep moving slowly, but keep moving. There you go. Get your opportunity there. It's very nice. It's very nice. Okay. Just keep moving. It's good. Whatever you do, keep moving. Never stop. There you go. People are getting out of their seats. That's good. All right. Very nice. Okay. All right. Five, four, three two, one. All right. Game over. Game over. Game over. All right. Great. We'll count those up. First service, the Saints won. Just to let you know. Saints. Marching here. Very good. Thank you, everybody who helped doing that. Okay. All right. Uh, there was a total point to what we did, right? What is the point to what we did? We have a bunch of Saints fans who are totally disgusted. Why are they disgusted? past interference. They've been robbed. They've been absolutely robbed. And so what a Saints fan would contend is that the Super Bowl is being misrepresented this year, right? So, so you have a bunch of Saints fans who love football, who are so angry, they don't even, they're, they're probably, their TV doesn't even work because there's a big hole in the TV right now, right? They're so upset. They love football, but they're so upset and they don't want to watch Super Bowl. Actually, they're suing the NFL right now, right? Because they believe that the Super Bowl is being misrepresented. What does it have to do with the message today? Here's what it has to do with the message today. It's very, very important, right? There are people living in this city. They're your neighbors. They're your family members. They're your friends. They're your coworkers, whatever. 
And the crazy thing is, is they passionately believe in the things that Jesus Christ stands for. Not just that, but actually Jesus introduced the ideas, the virtuous ideas that they are passionate about. They want nothing to do with the Christian church. Nothing. Nothing to do with the Christian church. And what we find most of the time, it's because Jesus Christ has been misrepresented to them. This, my friends, is what we're going to talk about today. This is going to be uh, another one of those difficult messages. So I want to prepare you beforehand. I said this last week. I told about the story about me going to the doctor, and he, the diagnosis was you need orthotics. Now, the reason I told you that story, everybody, is the idea was the impatience of the doctor. And kind of the sad thing is a lot of people came to me and says, well, can you just, I don't care about what you said. Could you tell me did the orthotics work? <laughs> I said, I think you maybe, okay, all right. So they didn't work for me. I love orthotics, but they did not work for me. But the point of the story is, is we're going to have to be patient with this, particularly if you're the type of person who's been in church a long, let's just say a long time, and you have a very high view of the Bible. This is going to be like, what? Okay, it's going to be one of those, because that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 really makes it like the gears are turning and the smoke is starting to come out of our ears and stuff like that. But if we, but if we will do the hard work of clarifying what the masterpiece is, oh, you're telling me that the Patriots are Rams? Is that Rams? Yes. Okay, thank you, Allie. The Rams, the Ram, Rams won. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Awesome. What was I talking about? Uh, if, if we will do yeah, orthotics, that's right. <laughs> Let me tell you, can I tell you where to get some orthotics at today? Uh, this is the masterpiece that's being presented. And when we understand, does anybody want me to take this cover off? Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Uh, when we truly understand the gospel, remember, remember what, what is... What is Romans all about? Romans is clarifying the gospel. You've got to stay in touch with that. Clarifying the gospel. Trying to clarify what is it. Because when, when we understand the gospel, we embrace it. That's where the power. So if we're going to change the world, and actually the book of Romans is tied to massive changes, massive changes in people, but also just globally. You, I mean, we have already done that hard work of talking about this. So huge power, huge, huge change. But it's only when it's correctly understood. So I have to change myself before I can change the world. And to change myself, I have to actually understand what the gospel is. And what we're going to talk about today, what Paul is talking about today in this letter, is what the gospel is most mistaken for. Like, if it's going to be confused, here's the number one thing that people are going to say, oh, it's that. And Paul's saying, no, it's not that. It's going to be so hard when I say, no, 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 it is that. And Paul says, no, no, I'm absolutely telling you, it is absolutely not that. That's not the gospel. That's not how the Spirit enters your life. That's not how you get right with God. However you want to put that, that's not how salvation happens. That's not how your life is changed. That's not how the world is changed. So this is what we're after today. We're clarifying the gospel. A couple quick points, right? Just as a summary, it's on the back of your bulletin. Like, so just week one, we said the gospel is powerful. Why is it powerful, John? Paul says it's powerful because the Spirit enters our 
life. I mean, it was so powerful. It was so attractive to people in Rome, in this massive city of Rome, that people were like, do you want to become a Christian? Because if you want to accept Christ as Savior, you know what? There could be ramifications in our city, like people being fed to the lions. Like, it is so attractive. It touches me so deeply. I'm so interested in it that in the face of all that, I would like to accept Christ as my Savior. That's pretty pretty powerful. It's life-altering. The gospel is life-altering because it's a relationship. The gospel is a person. This is a person. It's not an idea. It's a person, which means it's very personal. So when you get into a relationship with somebody, you change. You can't, people sometimes say, you know what, I, I, I would be interested in getting married, I just don't want to change. Good luck with that, right? Because it, it changes, because that's what relationships do by nature. They change us, right? Number three, the gospel is a major attitude adjustment. This is what we looked at last week. It changes our attitude, and today the gospel is the real thing. I would like us to go slowly through Romans 2, verses 17 to 24. I encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 2. I want to focus in line by line, verses 17 to 24. Here we go. Now you... If you call yourself a Jew, it's time out right there. We're going to work our way through this slowly. When he says you call yourself a Jew, he's speaking to a person who lives a certain lifestyle. So when you said this person is Jewish, 2,000 years ago, he goes, oh, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. They live a certain lifestyle. If I was to say you, that person is a Rastafarian, you say, oh, okay, there's an association with a lifestyle that that person lives by. Right? When I was growing up, I, I grew up here in Arlington my entire life. And in middle school and high school, there was a large group of people here, teenagers, middle school and high school age, right, who called themselves the Grits, the Grits. We have a few native Arlingtonians in this room that are old enough to remember the Grits, right? And that was a certain lifestyle they lived. One of the things that I remember distinctly about Grits, because I knew a lot of Grits, right, you're like, what is Grits? yes. Talk to a native Arlingtonian, they're going to explain to you. Is all the grits would talk to you when they're having a conversation, they would do their, like this, yeah, man. And so anytime you saw a grit, it was just like this. And you just, and naturally you just wanted to start going like this with them, okay? But there was a certain lifestyle. What I'm telling you is you're Jewish. You're, hey, you call yourself, it means you live in by a certain lifestyle, right? We cool? Okay. If you rely on the law and boast in God. So they had this incredible privilege is that this law, Genesis to Malachi, was given to them. And it talked about God's love, but it also talked about moral living, and it talked about rules. There's all these wonderful things. And like, yes, we have... Re- so it was a great privilege. It was a great privilege to have this, to be able to live in that community that was filled with so much more justice, actually, which we'll get to in just a minute. But there was a responsibility there, and what they took from that was as they began to boast, oh, look at us, he gave it to us. He gave it to us. Okay, let's continue. Like, if you know, verse 18, if you know his will, which they felt they did, and approve of what is, notice that word, superior, because you're, why? Because you're instructed by the law. I'm a good moral person. Do you want to have good morals? Absolutely. Yes. Okay? If you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind. Now, for those of us been around in church a long time, more familiar with the Bible, okay? We know that what's being said here is the same thing Jesus addressed, right, when he addressed the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were really moral people, like they lit, right? He says, you're blind guides. So he says here, Paul says, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, you're a light for those who are in, I mean, just catch the picture that he's saying here. People don't have light. They're in, you're an instructor to the foolish. Yes, 
We are instructors to those foolish people out there. A teacher of little children. Why? Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Yes, in Genesis to Malachi, there is truth. There's truth about God. There's truth about his relation. So he's lifting his, yes. Then, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Who's teaching you? Because you need to be taught something here. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Like, of course we don't steal. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Of course we don't. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Of course we don't. What is being spoken of here? So Christ in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he went through a similar thing. You have heard it said, don't lie. Or you heard it said, don't commit murder. But have you ever been angry with somebody? Because that inner attitude, so there's an external, there's something on the outside, but there's something on the inside, and God's saying, I see the two the same. We see them differently. We only see, right? We only see the external. But we feel something that's happening in the attitude of somebody's heart, and Christ says, the seed of those sinful actions are in you. And you just think because you're putting on a good front on the outside that somehow that makes you totally different from people who are actually doing the things on the outside. You're doing them on the inside, but they're doing them on the outside, and therefore I've got the way. And he says, you know what? The answer is that nobody can do this. You heard it said, don't commit adultery. But what I'm telling you is never lust. What is Christ setting us up for? What is he saying You look at that, and if you're going to be honest, if you're going to be completely honest with the words of Christ in Scripture, and you're going to be completely honest with the message of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis to Malachi, you're going to say, you know what? None of us can do that. Oh, my gosh, we're all in the same boat, but we want to. And so what we say is, okay, I get this outside thing, right? So I must be at least get some credit for that. Paul's saying no. You don't. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who people say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then final, the final finale, verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's the, this is really hard. Because here we have some very moral people seeking, working very hard to live a certain life. And the normal human response to that is to say the people who aren't living that life, who are living a life that I would consider very, very immoral, they are blaspheming God. And what Paul says is actually, yes, they are blaspheming God and they're doing it because of you. Whoa, time out, buddy. I mean, the cause of the problem is not the people on the outside. The cause of the problem, the people on the inside. That's why they're blasphemy. Have you, man, think about that. This is what, this is what's being said here. In Romans 2, 5, a verse we studied last week, but I didn't fully explain. He says, you have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. Those words in the Greek always point to somebody who is an idolater. So they're idolizing something. These people who are very moral and very good are idolizing something. They're bowing down to something. And that's something that they're bowing down to and causing other people who are not a part of their lifestyle to blaspheme God is called moralism. 
and is the thing that most people mistake the gospel or Christianity for. And this is going to be where we have to really think and be very patient and work this thing through, okay? So here, so here we go. What is moralism? Tim Keller says this about moralism. Moralism is extremely common and always has been. It is the biggest religion in the world today. It is the religion of people who compare themselves with others, who notice that they are a lot more decent than other people. What is moralism? Being a good moral person is great, okay? Please be moral. This is not anything, oh, be immoral. No, no, no. Being moral is a great thing, particularly if you're my neighbor. Please be moral. Please be honest and all those. Okay, please, please do that. But we can't mistake moralism for this masterpiece that's being painted for us over here because if we do, it leads people to blaspheme God's name and it dishonors God himself. That's what moralism, that's what moralism actually does. The Bible, the law is absolutely magnificent, but it must not be turned into a system of salvation which is what they're doing, and that's what moralism does. I keep certain moral rules, and I earn God's favor. Here, everybody else is down here. It's the wrong picture. It's not the masterpiece. Moralism says I'm clean because I live a clean moral life. Therefore, I'm clean, and you need to live like me. The gospel says we are all equally sinful, equal Like we're all on the same equal footing, all on the same ground. And that Christ alone is the masterpiece, not my moral living. As good as it might be, not my moral living. That Christ alone is the masterpiece. This is why the Bible just says it's in Christ alone. It's by grace alone. It's by faith alone. We're going to come to this in a few weeks. It's apart from the law. The law represents all the rules. Apart from all the rules. The Bible is so clear about this. The only problem is, is that... Because we're human beings, because we're all sinful human beings, we twist it. And the biggest mistake about the gospel today is actually moralism is the gospel, and it's not. I didn't understand this. I grew up in church all my life. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I never understood this. And it wasn't until years after I was like wrestling with Romans, like, oh my gosh, how could I have never seen this before? So I understand. Listen. If this is the first time you've ever heard this and you're like a church person with a high view of the Bible, I completely understand where you're coming from. I have wrestled with this for more than 10 years. So patience, patience with this. The gospel says we're all equally sinful and Christ alone is the masterpiece. He is the way. I'm not the way. Grace is not the way. Some other group of people who are Christians are not the way. This is the only way there is. This is the only way there is. Many times we see, because we're hiders, we want to hide we want to hide who we truly are. We want to hide what our true weaknesses are. We don't want to be completely honest. What did Adam and Eve do the moment that they sinned? What did they do? They went into hiding, and then they went into blaming. They went into comparing. They tried to hide. They tried to cover up. It was natural. It's natural. Hiding is a natural thing because it's a human sinful thing. That's what we do. We hide. When, when there's not sin, we just are totally honest. We're just out there. Yes. Yes, this is, who, this is what I'm thinking on the inside. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I've thought, right? It's who I am. And we try to hide it through moralism, and we try to live an impeccable moral life to cover that up. We try to cover it up. This is what he's saying here. Hiding comes very natural to us. Now, I'm going to give you a couple quotes here. And the reason I'm going to do this, and they're from very biblical conservative people, and I want to stress this because some of you are going to say, okay, John, you've lost me here. This is crazy. And the reason I'm stressing they're very conservative 
very, very high view of the Bible because I know many of us listening and say, well, wait a minute, are you saying X way? So they're clarifying the gospel. This is their thoughts on moralism. This is the president. His name is Dr. Albert Mollers, pretty well famous in the church world as an academic. He is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, not necessarily the most liberal seminary in the country. Okay? Moralism. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel. The gospel is not moralism. Most people that I talk to, even people that really, really, you know, know the Bible, they've been studying it, people who've gone to Bible college, people who've gone to seminary, people off the street, whatever, okay, a whole array of people. You ask them, put a microphone in front of your face, can you explain to me Christianity? The positive response usually is, yes, I can tell you what Christianity, it means be a good person. And pretty plain and simple, it means to be a good person, okay? and there's nothing wrong being a good person, please be a good person. That is not this, completely different. Being a good person is not the gospel. The negative response is, yes, of course I can tell you what Christianity is. It means to be a judgmental person. That's the negative response. That also is not Christianity. Totally wrong. So what exactly is the gospel? It's a famous uh, pastor's name, and it's uh, Pastor Donald Barnhouse. He pastored the same church in Philadelphia for over 30 years. I want you to think about this. We're doing a 10-week study on the book of Romans. He did a 10-plus-year study on the book of Romans. He led his church through the book of Romans for more than 10 years. You think there's a lot to be said about the book of Romans? More than 10 years. He's pretty famous, okay? Pretty conservative. He's passed away. He died in 1960. This is what he says about moralism. Remember, he's from Philadelphia. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. We need to do the hard work of understanding something that's really important. If we want to experience the power of the gospel, if we want to experience a personal change and a global change, we have to understand what the masterpiece and the masterpiece is not moralism. It's something completely different. If we get the two mixed up, what happens is the spirit does not enter in and we do not experience the power of the gospel. So this is really, really important that we do this. And this is what Paul's entire point is here. What is the real thing? This is the real thing. The gospel is the real thing. The masterpiece of Jesus Christ that's being painted for us is actually the real thing. Now, what happens is, is when we, we, we get that mixed up, a lot of people, as he says in verse 24, begin to blaspheme God. And then we, a lot of times, our natural reaction is just, yeah, well, you're terrible or you're depraved or you're sick or you're sinful or you're X, Y, and Z. That's why you're blaspheming God. And what Paul comes around and says, which is really convicting, he says, no, actually, they're blaspheming God because of you church-going moral person. And that's so hard to take, and I understand that, because he's talking about people like me. He's talking about people like me. I mean, that's the bottom line. Now, here's where I did not get to last week, in which I want to talk about now. Um, I could give you a lot of quotes, but I'll just, I'll just choose one. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, which is a 
fairly well known. And, you know, um, what we call the new atheists, very popular on college campuses, and they're saying things. And, 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 and people, for the most part, are kind of eating this, eat, eating a lot of this up, and they're almost become like rock stars. So you need to understand that this is really, really important that we clarify this position. So here's what Dawkins says in his book. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Right? Why is he so unpleasant, Mr. Dawkins? Because he's proud, he's petty, he's unjust. He's homophobic, he's misogynistic, etc., etc., etc. It's a very negative reaction to moralism. Right? Specifically, he, he named the Old Testament. So that is Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Hebrew Bible, what some people call the Old Testament as he, as he has done here. I just want to say something before we get deeper into moralism. I want to say this. Um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Genesis to Malachi, is absolutely brilliant. He says that God, this unpleasant character of fiction, right, is, is unjust, is terrible, kind of despicable, all these things that he says about it. I, it's, it's academically, can we back up for just a second? Here's how you look at something. You look at it in its context. So if God is so unjust, here's what we know to be a truth, the truth. Here's what we know about the truth of history. We know that people who lived underneath of that civil or Sinai law that was given there in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and on and on, that people fared much better, particularly those people who are the most vulnerable people in society, women, children, and people who were foreigners who were coming in to that community from other places. People experienced a far, not a little bit, but a far greater degree of justice and love and mercy and grace. And I know we read things and we read them from here, looking back 4,000 years, and we say, well, I don't think that's so cool and I don't think that's so cool. But you know what? If you lived 4,000 years ago and you were actually living underneath of it, you would be applauding that law because of the mercy and grace that it extended to you. This is what we must grasp. None of the other nations around them did this. This was far more merciful and gracious. And I'm just saying, if you transport yourself 4,000 years back, you're not criticizing the unjust God. You're bowing down at his feet and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done for us. And that is the academic way to approach this. My guess, and I don't know because obviously I don't know him, but I believe maybe he has had Jesus Christ and he's had the Bible misrepresented to him and it's causing him to blaspheme God. That's all speculation on my part. But I'm just saying academically, which he is an academic, this is the way you look at it. This is how you look at history. The Old Testament law is absolutely brilliant, 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 and people were blessed to live underneath of its rule. That's a fact. Just a fact. One other thing. My first day of seminary, I went to a very conservative Bible college and went to a very, very liberal seminary. Okay? It was great. It really was. I mean, it, 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 it really was. It was one of the blessings that God gave me. And I say that honestly. Um, my first day of seminary was about Leviticus chapter 18. And professor was just uh, uh, railing. We put the mature con- uh, content signs up. I'm going to get into some stuff here throughout the con- conclusion of this message. All right? Uh, it was all about sexual prohibitions, things that sexually were banned that, you know, should not be done. There's 19 of them, 19 sexual prohibitions in Leviticus chapter 18. And my professor just like obliterated them and said how ridiculous and foolish and this is the problem. This is why people like a Dawkins or whatever would hate it. And it's just over the top. It's crazy. And all, all of these kind of things. Now, here's, here's the fact. You ready for the fact? 
when Israel entered in, so they left Egypt and they went into Canaan land or what we would call Israel today. When they went in, when they left Egypt, all those 19 were common practices. That's why it's mentioned in Leviticus 18 because this is what was commonly done. When they entered into Canaan, these are the things that were commonly done. Stuff like, you can read it yourself in Leviticus 18. Like one of them is, don't have sex with your mother-in-law. Would never think about it. But these are things, these, okay. All right, these are things that are common. And so they're listed. And so, right, people like, oh, this is my problem with the Bible, all these prohibitions. Okay, okay. Those were common practices. We're talking 4,000 years ago. Today, today, in every developed country on our planet today, 17 of the 19 are either illegal or they're seriously frowned upon. And what I simply want to say to you is that the Old Testament, as brilliant as it was, as just as it was, as what a blessing it was to live underneath of it 4,000 years ago, the Bible was light years ahead of the rest of the world and actually drug the world out of the muck and the mire of some of the things that were going on. It was terrible, just ruining families. Just, just drug it. I mean, that's just a reality. That's just a fact. That's the way it is. So rather than us standing here in 2019 looking back and criticizing, we need to do the academic responsible thing of move back 4,000 years to the time it was and look at where it has brought us. People that I know that stand passionately for justice and mercy and universal human rights. What are universal human rights, right? Universal human rights is that we're all equal. We're all equal. Do you believe in that? Do people you know believe in that, that we're all equal? I have one question. Where do you think that idea came from? Where did the idea of universal human rights come from historically? What we do know is it did not come from the advanced Greek culture. We know it didn't come from Aristotle who said some races were born just to be slaves. We know that for a fact. What I'm suggesting to you is all of us have been created, as the Bible says, in the image of God. And Dr. King would say there's no gradations in the image of God. And that's why everybody's created equally. So when I go to my neighbors and friends, I'm like, I want nothing to do with the Bible and I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And I love equal human rights. Where did the idea come from? It's just something that we have to wrestle with academically. We have to just really think rationally about this. So it's absolutely brilliant. And the boundaries that are there that it gives for us were a tremendous blessing. Now, the issue is, is they took this great privilege. Romans 2 is talking about this. They took this great privilege and they forgot their responsibility. That disconnect was everything. Privilege to have it, no responsibility. God says to Abraham, Genesis 12, Abraham... I'm blessing you, and then who can finish it for me? So, so that you would bless others. So here's a great privilege. But if I don't take my responsibility of taking that to the whole world, that God loves, Abraham was far from perfect, far from perfect. And to go out to the world and say, you know what? God is merciful and gracious. He is perfect. Here's his standard. But he loves you so much. He is going to accept you and love you. I'm going to give a salvation call at the end of this. We get so wigged out over salvation calls. Here's the decision that will lie before you at the end of this service today. Will you repent of the belief that Jesus Christ doesn't love you unconditionally? Will you repent of that belief? 
There's your repentance. Oh, we can repent on all kinds of stuff. But here's where salvation is. I believe that Jesus Christ loves me unconditionally. That is the masterpiece that has been painted. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. So that, verse 17, the world is not condemned. The world is not condemned. That he is for you, not against you. When you are saying, I receive Christ as Savior, you're saying, I put my full belief that he loves me just as I am. That's salvation. Moralism says, no, he doesn't. You have to do this and this and this and this and live this way, this way, and then it changes from group to group that you get in. But Jesus Christ is clear. I love you just the way you are. That is what salvation is, and they forgot that. It'd be like me. You know, we have, this has been great with these giant gift cards. You, can you imagine this? We have given almost $25,000 worth of giant gift cards away to people who have been impacted by the government shutdown. And one of the greatest, one of the coolest things for us is to read all the stories because we have so many people who have taken the cards, like, I need a card, I'll take one, but I'm going to pass a bunch of others on to other people, and we get to read all these stories. They're coming in on emails, and people are talking to us. Now, I want you to imagine this. What if, what if God showed up in my office one day. He's like, John, the whole world has been impacted by the government shutdown. Everybody needs a giant card. Here's unlimited giant gift cards for you. Take them. Here's my mandate to you. Bless the whole world. Just, just give them away. I'm like, okay, but God, um, you know, some people are, I mean, some people are just lazy. I'm not giving them a card. Like if they stop their lazy ways or some people are living a certain lifestyle, I don't like that. I'm like, I've got the blessing, I've got the privilege, and I've forgotten the responsibility. The responsibility is to take and to give away. That would be completely wrong, wouldn't it be? This is what's being said in Romans 2, that these people are imperfect. All of us are imperfect. We're all on a level playing field. I don't care how moral I am. I'm still completely imperfect because I have all kinds of stuff going on on my attitudes inside of my heart, things that you can't see, things that I don't want you to see, right? That we're all on the same level playing field. And I need to share that unconditional love of Christ with the whole world. And moralism gets in the way and says, oh, no, absolutely, absolutely not. Um, I want to give you one case, an example about this, okay? And then we're going to move to the end. I want to talk about Jonah. I hardly ever talk about Jonah. I don't talk about Jonah because it's about this big fish and a guy being swallowed by a fish. And that's when people, like, their eyes glaze over. They look at you like, are you stupid? <laughs> Leave it. So I just want to say nicely. Can I say nicely? If you've read the story of Jonah and you think it's about a big fish, you just, and I say this because I'm going to say it to myself because that's where I was. You're not thinking enough if you think it's about a fish. Uh, if anybody here is in the room is like, yes, I don't really care for self-righteous people. No, I, I mean, who in, the room, in this room would put their hands and say, I just love being around self-righteous people. It's just so awesome, you know? Okay, so, so if you think that self-righteousness is a bad thing, then you need to embrace uh, the book of Jonah because that's what the whole book is about. It's not really about a fish. Not about a fish. Sorry to break that news, but that's what it's about. So you've got this guy living a very moral life. He's blessed with the law of God. He's living by the rules. And God says, there's a group of people over here. They're living a completely different way that you are. They're pagans. They don't have the law. They're doing their own thing. It's very, very, very immoral in your standards. And I need you to go and bless them. He's like, nope, absolutely not. Don't want to, not interested. And so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And that's a couple hundred miles away. Instead, he runs a couple thousand miles away to a place called Tarshish. Well, he never makes it there because he goes down. He gets on board of a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors, you know, pagan sailors. And um, they're on the boat and this terrible storm ensues. And here the pagan sailors are all praying. And what's Jonah doing? The godly man. 
the righteous man. Is he praying? Absolutely not. He's not praying at all. He's just asleep because he's falling asleep at the wheel. That's what the story is about. And they wake him and say, please pray, Mr. Holy Guy. How about a prayer or at least read a Bible passage or do something spiritual or moral for us? He comes up on deck and he starts praying. And then they say, you know, we got to figure out what's going on. They cast lots and they figure out, okay, the problem is Jonah. Now, what do you think the unmerciful pagans will do? I'll just get rid of that guy, throw him overboard. And that they don't. He says, throw me overboard. He says, no, we're not going to do that. They show, they show all kinds of mercy and grace. Mr. Morality has no mercy and grace. He's like, you all can die. And the pagans show tremendous mercy and grace. This is blowing everybody's mind. So if you're Jewish and you're reading this two, 3,000 years ago, it's just really stretching you, okay? And so they throw him overboard. He's in the fish. Let's forget about the fish, okay? All right. And then he gets spit up and he goes into Nineveh and the pagans who will never respond to the love of God, who will never respond to the message of God, respond in droves like the whole city. The whole city responds. They all repent and, you know, they, God, we need you. We need you, God. And he's like, oh, my gosh. We're told from the king all the way to the animals, right? They fast. That's how serious they are. Now, when you don't feed your dog, then you know you're really serious about something. You know what I'm saying? You're making your dog fast because we would never do that in my house. It'd be unbelievable. Then he goes outside the city, goes outside the city, and he's just disgusted. He's disgusted. And he's watching what's happening. And God allows this plant to grow up overnight, and it gives him shade in the hot desert sun. And then the next day, God provides a worm that kills the plant, and now he's out in the sun, and he's so ticked off about the plant. And God basically says, so you're really angry about the plant. What do you think about the people? He says, I don't really care about the people. I need the plant back. And he was very, very moral. So moralism, moralism isn't the answer. It's not the gospel. It's not the masterpiece. And we need to figure out what the difference is between the two. It's very important if we want to experience the power of Christ. Now, one of the things we know about Jonah is, as you read the story, he's completely isolated. He's like all on his own. And you know, when you're all by yourself thinking your own thing, you know, you live in an unreal world. Heard a great quote this week. I actually heard it many, many years ago. I was reminded of a great quote this past week from General George Patton. It's fantastic. He says, if everybody in the room is thinking alike, somebody's not thinking. We all need people in our life to kind of get up in our face every now and then and not be yes people. We say, hey, look, no, to counter us, to counter us. As much as my wife and I are alike, we are, we are incredibly different. Jesus, help me. We're so, we're so you know, we're, we're, very, we're very different. And she challenges me all the time. Now, emotionally, I hate it. But rationally, I know it makes me better. And Jonah didn't have somebody like that. Do you? Are you just listening to your own viewpoint? Are you listening to your own tribe? We're very tribal people. Are you just listening to your own tribe? Because when you do, if you're just in your own tribe, your own little thing, in your own little place, you are not going to have an understanding of God. And that's where Jonah was. And he needs somebody to challenge him. And he slipped into self-righteousness. And these people here in Romans 2 slipped into moralism and got far away from the gospel. And the gospel is where all the power is. All right, so here's my one fill in the blank. Go share the gospel with everybody. Bye, everybody. All right, I'm going to go about three or four minutes over. I want to apologize now. And I also want to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up something where I stopped last week. All right, I want to talk about homosexuality. And I know that makes us all nervous because it's very polarizing. Okay, and it's the most important. Like, John, why, why are you going to talk about this? I want to tell you why I'm going to talk about this. Because in Romans 1, there's this long list of stuff. Like, you shouldn't gossip. And if anybody's been hurt by gossip, you know how bad that is. But you're like, I, I really don't care about gossip. 
You shouldn't murder people. Yep, that's bad, but I really don't care about that. There's a long list, like 20 things there. There's only one thing that it seems like people really care about in that list, and that's homosexuality. And I say that simply because it's the only email I get. It's pretty much the only phone call I get. And when people stop me and ask me a question, nine times out of ten, it's like, I need to know about this one issue. I'm, I'm thinking about coming to your church, but first, I want to know about this one. So it's really, I'm not putting it down. I'm just telling you, it is, it is clearly the issue. So I would, like, I would like to spend just a second on this, if I can, in conclusion. I had some friends of mine, and they knew that uh, I have Netflix. They said, I want you to watch this show, Queer Eye, and it's about uh, five, five gay guys, and... Uh, I, I guess they do interior design or they come and help and remodel. I'm sorry if I'm butchering this show, okay? Okay. Uh, the episode one in season two was called God Bless Gay. Gay is a, a city in a state that I can't remember where it is, okay? So I watched it, and I want to direct quote one of the lines that was said in here because they're actually working for a church in this city. They're helping a, they're helping a church out. They're helping a church kind of remodel and make things beautiful and nice again. And uh, they walked into the church. So all four of them walk in, and the one guy who's kind of like the leader, he gets to the door of the church, and he just stops. And then he just stands there, and he won't go in. And everybody else came in. So he, one, of, one of the guys that were with him came back out, and he looked at him, and this is what he says. He says, you look like the gay that's scared that they're going to burn when they cross the door. And he's like, yep, I sure do. Because the only thing I know about Christianity is judgmentalism. Only thing I know is hatred. That's all I know. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not crossing the door. I don't want anything to do with it. And many people in the LGBTQ community feel the exact same way. Um, we have somebody here at Grace that told me this story. They have a relative of theirs um, who is gay and needed to meet them uh, one day after church. And the relative, this is a school property, right? They would not step foot on the school property. They had to meet them across the street. So... Obviously, because I get all the emails and I get the calls, and this is the one issue I get and the feelings. So, so this is something that is very, very prevalent. Hebrews 12.15 says, see to it, all right? So if you're a Bible-believing Christian and you have a high view of the Bible, I just, here's our responsibility. Remember, Jonah, privilege, no responsibility. Here's our responsibility. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Are, are, we, are we doing good on that? That's what I have to ask myself. How am I doing on that? See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And a lot of times the immediate reaction to that is, yeah, yeah, but John, yeah, but but John, what's being asked here is a change of theology. Like you're asking for theology to be changed. And that's what the real, you know, discussion is is all about. Now, I want to say something too. I know all this is tense, okay? Um. I have a lot of conversations with people about this, right? And I have conversations with people who are homosexual, and I have conversations with people who are heterosexual. I want to tell you about my heterosexual conversations for a second. Because people who are not gay, they say very adamantly, very strongly, 
you got to change that, that Bible and you got to change that. And it's very, you know, animated. It's very, very, very animated. And I always think of this same story. Here's, here's what I always think about. Back in the 50s and 60s, a bunch of middle class people from America, they went down to Central and South America to evangelize people with the gospel of Christ. And they looked at the suffering that was going on in Central and South America. And they said, on behalf of these people who are suffering so badly, we no longer believe in God. Like that's it. On behalf of those people on behalf of those people. And those very people turned to God in droves. Like there's more Christians in Central and South America than any other place on the planet, right? Like whole, whole towns converted to Jesus Christ because of the message of Christ. It's really important. Here, I'm stressing something. It's really important to actually listen to the people, right? So when people argue that over me, I said, okay, you know, thank you for speaking up on behalf of other people. Have you actually bothered to listen? So I made an endeavor over the past many years just to listen, just to listen to, to what is being said, right? This, what I'm going to share with you, is very consistent from what I have heard from people who are not heterosexual about theology. Many people from the LGBTQ community actually grew up in church. Do you know why they left? The latest poll research that I have read, the reason why they left, right, 3% left because of theology. 3%. 97% left because of a terrible attitude that did not reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. 97%. 97%. All the discussions I have with people who are not gay is like, you gotta, on behalf of them, I wanna tell you how they feel. I just like, what? Okay? Who, who would come back? 8% say, I'll come back if you change your theology. 92% said, I would be happy to come back. I would be happy to come back if you changed your attitude. Hebrews 12, 15. Be sure that no one misses the grace of God. How are we doing with that? Now, I want to show you a video here. It'll just take three minutes from Anna. Uh, well, it'll speak for itself. Let's play the video. So... I became a Christian in 1999. I was six years old, turning seven. And the question that was asked to me was, would you rather burn in hell or jump on clouds for the rest of eternity? Of course, as a, as a kid, <laughs> you would say, I would rather jump on clouds. So I accepted Christ as my savior that day uh, out of fear. So naturally, that's what I became to to understand and to believe, and that's what I started to share to everyone else around me. Uh, always this idea of if you're sinning, then you're in the fire. If you're not sinning, then you're under God's protection. Until the day my best friend from high school called me and he was like, I need to have lunch with you. So we went out for lunch. And he just looked at me and he said, I have something to tell you. And I am scared of having this conversation because I know you would not talk to me anymore. And in my mind, I was thinking, what can he possibly tell me that would make me just stop being his friend? And he just looked at me and he said, I am gay. And I thought you always knew that. And, but I, I would understand if you don't want to be around me anymore because that's just the kind of Christian you are. And that completely broke me. Um, 
because he was right. That that was the kind of Christian I was, the judgmental, the self-righteousness Christian that thought everyone that didn't act the way I act was wrong and everyone that didn't thought the way I thought was actually wrong too. All, all my life, all my Christian journey, I just did not understood exactly who Jesus was. Like, I knew nothing about the gospel. I knew a bunch about laws. I knew a bunch about Bible stories, like those Bible camp competitions. I would win them all because I knew everything. But I, I was missing the main point, that it's the love and the grace. I always had some kind of service role in, in churches that I've been part of. Um, the big difference is back then, I would do that because I thought that that's what you're supposed to do. I would I would just, oh yeah, you need help doing this. I would totally do it because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, whereas now, I am doing all these things. I'm volunteering at Grace. I'm taking over the Compassion and Justice Initiative ministry because I feel like this is my call. It's not something that I have to do out of obligation, but it's something that I was born to do out of, I understand God's love and I want other people to understand it too. No, The law is brilliant, it's just, it's moral, it's all those things. But we have been given a mandate, and that is that no one misses the grace of God. That's our responsibility. This is what the masterpiece is about. I want to say something that uh, if you are somebody uh, from the LGBTQ community and you... Um, have been hurt in some way, uh, I, I'm, my email is on the screen. Um, I would love just to listen to you. And I want to say after talking, because I have conversations with people all the time, uh, I just I want to tell you this, because everybody said, well, you better, you better tell everybody why you're asking for the email. Uh, my whole game plan is to simply listen. That's it. There's no other end game. The end game is to listen because I think it's really important. So I want to do that. So if you'd like to email me, I would love, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you're a person here today, and you've been in church a long time. Um, you have a high view of the Bible. I understand these are difficult topics to separate. But it's really important that we do. Moralism is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It actually dishonors the gospel, dishonors God's word, and um, it causes people to blaspheme God. So I want to conclude by saying this. I know it's tough. I, I know it's difficult. This stretches, this stretches us, right? Um, I want to end with, real quick with salvation. What exactly is salvation? What does it mean to embrace and receive the gospel? There is repentance there, and the repentance isn't over all the things I do. People are like, I don't want to become a Christian because I'm not ready to give up X, Y, and Z. That's not the gospel, right? Or people say, I'm ready to give X, Y, and Z up, <laughs> so I'm ready to jump in. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is repenting of the belief that Jesus Christ doesn't love you just as you are. Just as you are. Just like who, I just, who wouldn't want to receive the incredible, unconditional love of God? The only thing that would hold us back would be our pride. So really salvation hinges on can we repent of that pride that somehow I can do this myself and raise myself up or go my own way, right? And we just receive the unconditional love of God. That's what really is being discussed here. 
Would you fall into the arms of Jesus Christ who loves you no matter what, just as you are? That, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would like to do that today, we're, my wife and I, Krista, we're going to join the prayer team on this wall, and we'd love to pray with anybody about anything. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, for how wonderful it is. But Lord, your grace, which we all need, grace is so wonderful to receive, so hard to extend. Lord, thank you that you have extended it so unconditionally and without limit to all of us. Help us to understand this beautiful, powerful thing that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ and to receive it. And along with receiving it, experience what we all truly long for. In Christ's name, amen.